This morning we're going to begin looking together at the book of Acts. If you want to turn there in your Bible, that might be helpful. And if you're using a church Bible, it's page 1092. The book of Acts is often known as the Acts of the Apostles, but that's not really the best title. And the reason it's not the best is because this book is really about the acts of God. God is the main character. So this book is about God at work. It's about God causing the good news about Jesus to spread. It's about God using his word to build the church of Jesus Christ. It's about God working through his apostles and disciples. And this book is important for us in several ways. First and foremost, this book shows us that our God is an active and a powerful God. The God we see working in Acts is the same God that we serve today. This book also shows us where we came from. It records the early days of the church. It's a record of our heritage as members of the church today. We are part of the work that began in Acts. And this book also teaches us about our calling as Christians today. Acts is not an instruction manual on how to do church. We're not meant to slavishly copy everything the early church did. In fact, we couldn't copy it exactly. Those first believers lived in a different time and a different place. This book is not an instruction manual, but it does teach us about our calling. Methods and situations change. But the purpose and calling of the church never changes. Paying close attention to this book teaches us what we're for as a church. It teaches us what our priorities should be. And I hope that as we look closely at this book, we'll develop a clearer understanding of God's purpose for the church. I hope that we'll develop a greater enthusiasm for the mission of the church and a greater confidence in the God who's still building the church. And having given that by way of introduction, let's turn to Acts chapter 1. Follow along with me as I read from verse 1 down to verse 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? 
He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is God's word. And this passage teaches us about living between Christ's resurrection and return. This short section lays the foundation for the whole book. It gives us the key truths that will be unfolded in the rest of the book. In these verses, we learn about the church's foundation, the church's source of power, the church's mission, and the church's perspective. First of all, the church's foundation. It's the fact that Jesus is alive and at work. Look back to verses 1 to 3. Luke says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. The author of the book of Acts is a man called Luke. And his opening words here remind us this is a continuation of his first book, Luke's Gospel. That book also began with a dedication to Theophilus. Now, we don't really know anything about him. It's likely he was a prominent person, and he was probably wealthy. He may well have funded the publication of Luke's two books. Acts is volume two. And Luke begins here by summarizing volume one. He says his former book was about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. That's an interesting way to put it, because it implies that volume two is going to be all about what Jesus continued to do and teach. Volume one ended with Jesus being taken up to heaven. We read that passage earlier in the service. And Luke is going to focus on that event again in this passage. But he wants to make clear that Jesus' return to heaven didn't end his work here on earth. Jesus continues his work through his church. A writer called John Stott has pointed out that this sets Christianity apart from all other religions. Why? Because all other religions regard their founder as having completed his ministry during his lifetime. But Luke says that Jesus only began his Every week we come together here not to remember a leader who did great things and then passed away. 
We come together to worship one who did and is still doing great things. That truth is the foundation of the church. So we could call this book The Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus. There are lots of clubs and societies that are dedicated to celebrating the past. I knew someone at university who ran a James Hogg Society. James Hogg was a Scottish writer who wrote one novel. It was published in 1824. Now, it was a decent book, but it's not much to find a society on. I imagine the meetings of that society were pretty repetitive. If you want to celebrate music from the past, you can join a Beatles fan club. Or you can buy a season ticket to the Birmingham Symphony. There are also societies that reenact historic battles or recreate ancient ways of life. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. But we need to be clear that the church is a completely different thing. The church is much, much more than a society that's dedicated to celebrating history. It's true that we do remember and celebrate what God has done in the past. We're going to be doing that later on as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. But the reason Jesus' death is worth celebrating is because he didn't stay dead. We remember his death today because he came out the other side of death. He lives to bring others out of death. There are many people in England today who view the church as nothing more than a monument to the past. That's unfortunate because the true church is a place where God is at work in the present. Before Jesus returned to heaven, the one thing he wanted to cement in his disciples' minds was the fact that he's alive. Verse 2 mentions the apostles. Apostle just means messenger. But here it's referring to the original group of twelve who are at this point 11, minus Judas. Verse 3 says that for a period of 40 days after his death and resurrection, Jesus showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Why? Why stay and do that for 40 days? Because these men had the task of passing on the news about a living Savior. Jesus stayed around to give them all the proof they needed that he really was alive. And we're told he also spoke to them about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a way of talking about the rule of God. And in one sense, God rules over his whole creation. He's sovereign over all of it, all of the time. In that sense, Everything is in God's kingdom. But it's also true that much of this world is in rebellion against God. Men and women resist his rule. So the New Testament talks about God's kingdom growing and spreading. That happens as more and more people give up their rebellion and submit willingly to God's rule. And that's the way the word kingdom is being used here. 
It's something that grows and develops. That's what Jesus spoke about during the 40 days after his resurrection. He wanted these men to realize that the work wasn't done. Yes, Jesus had done the work of opening up a way to be reconciled to God. He had died as a substitute for sinful men and women so they could be saved from the punishment their sin deserved. That particular work was done on the cross. When Jesus rose again, that work was completed. But now came the work of building the kingdom, bringing men and women into the benefits of what Jesus did on the cross. And Jesus' followers have a big part to play in that work. Jesus is about to commission them for that work. But first, they need to know they're not being called to set up a club for remembering the past. They need to know the church is not going to be the ancient equivalent of the James Hogg Society. It's not about celebrating a fairly obscure figure who's now dead and gone. No, the church is founded on the fact that Jesus is alive and at work. And so Jesus gave these men many convincing proofs that he was alive. Jesus never intended to stay on earth after his resurrection. He belonged in heaven. So how is he going to work through his followers here on earth? We find the answer in verses 4 and 5. Jesus tells his disciples about the church's source of power, the Holy Spirit. Verse 4 says, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said the same thing at the end of Luke's gospel. Stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Here we learn that being clothed with power from on high means being baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the gift God the Father had promised in the Old Testament. For example, through the prophet Ezekiel, God said to his people, I will put my spirit in you. Through Isaiah, God said, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring. And when we get to Acts chapter 2, we'll see God's promise of the spirit through the prophet Joel. The point is, God never intended his people to live for him and serve him in their own power. He knew that they needed his power. And he promised to give it to them. Sometimes you and I might think the first disciples had it easier than us. After all, Jesus was right there with them. God the Son was among them. But the New Testament tells us God is among us too. He's among us in the person of his Holy Spirit. The third member of the Trinity. Yes, we look forward to the day when we see Jesus face to face. But we're not stuck with a second best situation today. We have the very best situation for the work we've been called to do. 
We have God not walking beside us, but living in us, working through us, giving us power that we don't have of ourselves, power to love and serve and obey and persevere to the end. The Holy Spirit is not just for elite Christians who've had some special extra experience. No, His presence is a reality in the life of everyone who belongs to Jesus. And when we think about the power of the Holy Spirit, we shouldn't just think of spectacular things like healings or prophecies. The Spirit's power is essential for unspectacular, everyday Christian life. We can't get through one day of the Christian life without the power of the Spirit. Look what Jesus tells these disciples in verse 4. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised. In other words, you can't even make a start without the Spirit. And you certainly can't keep going without Him. The book of Acts places a remarkable emphasis on the Holy Spirit. He will be mentioned over 50 times. That's more than any other New Testament book. This is a book about the birth and growth of the church. And the message is going to be driven home to us. The church's source of power is the Holy Spirit. Before Megan and I moved here to Pelsall, I spent a few months as the interim pastor of a church in Chicago. And that church was going through a very difficult period. And they had lost a considerable number of people. Shortly after I started there, one of the members asked me how I was going to make the church grow. I must have looked at him funny because he went on to say, didn't they teach you in seminary how to make the church grow? I hope that that sounds funny to you because it's a very silly idea. As Christians, God has given us clear commands and responsibilities. There are things that we're called to do. But the power comes from God the Holy Spirit. You and I can no more make the church grow than we could make a plastic tree grow. We don't have the power. But sometimes we forget that. And we go looking for a silver bullet. We go looking for some technique or some strategy that will cause men and women to flock to Christ. Or maybe as individuals, we look for some experience that will make us forever immune to temptation, forever immune from discouragement. But Christian ministry, the whole of the Christian life, is about daily dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit. He's our source of power. We need Him every day, we need Him in every circumstance. We need Him when things are going badly, and we need Him equally when things are going well. There will never be a situation where we don't need Him. As individuals and as a church, we need to be seeking His power every day. Jesus has spoken about power 
And now he explains what that power is for. He explains the church's mission. It's to witness to the ends of the earth. What Jesus is going to say in verses 7 and 8 is prompted by the disciples' question to him in verse 6. They say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? The disciples' thinking seems to go something like this. You told us you were the king, Jesus, and now you've proved you're the king. You've risen from the dead. You've shown your power. So when are you going to take the throne and start ruling? They seem to have in mind a return to the days of King David. They expect Jesus to take the throne in Jerusalem and rule over the nation of Israel. Now, there are some problems with their thinking. One problem is their view of what Jesus' earthly ministry, excuse me, his earthly reign will be like. They're correct that Jesus will come and reign on this earth but it will look a little different from what the disciples are expecting. His rule will extend to the whole earth, not just the borders of Israel. And as the book of Acts unfolds, the disciples will realize this. But here, when Jesus answers their question, he doesn't correct their idea of what his earthly reign will look like. He corrects their idea of the timing of his earthly reign. In their understanding, now that Jesus has risen, there's nothing left to do. Set up your earthly throne, Jesus. Let's get going with your reign. But Jesus says, no, there's still work to do before I take my throne in this earth. Verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Considering the number of times Jesus said we cannot know the timing of God's program, it's amazing how many Christians spend their time speculating about God's timing. But Jesus' message to his first disciples and to us is leave that alone. Don't waste your time with that. You'll only bring dishonor on the church when you get it wrong time and time again. Instead, Jesus is saying, leave God's timing to God and focus on the mission that he has given the church. At the end of verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. God has not given us the power of the Holy Spirit so we can entertain ourselves or make ourselves comfortable or promote ourselves. The Holy Spirit is with us to empower us for our God-given mission, being witnesses to the ends of the earth. In his mercy, God has delayed the day when Jesus begins his earthly reign. If his reign had started when the disciples wanted it to start, he would only have been reigning over a small group of Jews who were following him at this point. The rest of the human race would have been wiped out. 
Because when Jesus ascends to his earthly throne, all remaining rebels will suffer his judgment. And so in his mercy, God has delayed that day. Because God is determined that his kingdom will include men, women, and children from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Later on, the Apostle Peter would come to understand that. In his second letter, he wrote, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And God's mercy, Jesus' resurrection was not followed immediately by his earthly reign. Men and women still have opportunity to respond to the good news about Jesus. They have opportunity to turn from their sin and be reconciled to God. And our mission is to be witnesses to them. So what does that mean? Well, for these first disciples, being a witness meant sharing what they had seen with their own eyes. They had witnessed the risen Jesus firsthand. They were eyewitnesses. They had the unique role of writing and telling the things they had seen and heard. In his first letter, the Apostle John wrote this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. John is talking about Jesus. By the time the apostles came to write the New Testament, they understood their role as witnesses. They were simply to tell what they had seen and what they had heard so that others could know it was true. And all of that means that you and I are not witnesses in the same sense as these first disciples were. So what does it mean for us to be witnesses? It simply means pointing others to those eyewitness accounts. That's what God has preserved them for here in the New Testament. So being a witness does not mean talking about the good feelings we get when we think about Jesus. It does not mean telling everyone what Jesus said to me this morning. Being a witness means pointing people to the truth about Jesus. The truth that he was fully God and at the same time fully man. The truth that he came to earth to die as a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. That he was proved genuine by his resurrection that he welcomes and forgives all who come to him in repentance and that he's coming back to judge this world. You and I bear witness to people by pointing them to the accounts of those who were there, those who saw and heard it from Jesus himself. So strictly speaking, living a good life in front of others is not witnessing. Certainly our lives can back up our witness. They can gain a hearing for our witness and they can lose a hearing for our witness too. Our lives can cause people to ask us questions. 
But actual witnessing involves sharing the truth about Jesus. And for most of us, that won't be in a pulpit. It will be in one-to-one conversations with a neighbor or a relative, someone in our class, someone at the golf club or the gym. There's no doubt our lives should show that knowing Jesus makes a difference. But the lives we live are to complement our witness. They're not a substitute for our witness. You may have heard the saying, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Now, I can understand the good intention behind that idea, but actually, it's rubbish. Biblically, it is. We can't preach or share the gospel without using words. If we as a church are to be faithful to our mission, we have to be clear about what our mission is and what it's not. And our mission is not to be lovely people who never get around to talking about Jesus. Our mission is not just to say we love Jesus. It's to talk about who he is and what he has done. Now, I know that we can't possibly turn every conversation around to Jesus. I know that we need to build relationships with people. We can't just stand and preach at them. And I know some of us feel it would be easier to go out and go skydiving than to walk up to someone and talk about Jesus. But even so, we are called to be witnesses. That's what we're here for. And that's why God has given us the Holy Spirit. God doesn't expect us to have the power or the courage or the wisdom by ourselves. So we can't use our own weakness as an excuse. We have God, the Holy Spirit, with us, in us. And notice how Jesus explains it. They are to start in Jerusalem. That's where they are. Then they're to take the message out to the surrounding areas, Judea and Samaria. And then beyond that, to places none of them have ever been to before. By the end of Acts, the gospel will have reached from Jerusalem all the way to the city of Rome. That's quite an amazing spread in the 35 years that are covered in this book. But what we'll find is that the final chapter of Acts is open-ended. Actually, it feels like it doesn't have a proper ending. And no doubt that's very intentional we're being shown that the mission goes on. It didn't end with Acts chapter 28. One writer has said that every generation of the church is called to press beyond the fringes. For us, that might mean the next house, the next street, the next village, the next person in our family. We're to take the message where the message is not known. And it's true, there was a time when England probably counted as an evangelized place. Many people had heard the message, but today the message has been lost. 
Today, even people who think of England as a Christian country often have no clue about the true message of Christianity. You and I have the privilege of bearing witness to them. We are called to press beyond the fringes. We're called to take the good news to places where it's been lost, as well as to places it's never been yet. Our passage closes by giving us the church's perspective. Jesus is coming back. Verse 9, After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Jesus belongs in the glory and majesty of heaven. For a time, he set all of that aside. He came to earth for our salvation. But after that work was done, he returned where he belonged. He will never again set aside that glory and majesty. When he returns to this earth a second time, it will be as the all-conquering king of heaven in all of his glory, with all of heaven's army at his side. As Jesus disappears here, two angels appear to remind the disciples they have work to do. Someone has said their calling was to be witnesses, not stargazers. In other words, we are to use our time well until Jesus returns. We're not to just pass the time. We're not to just opt out of service and choose a life dedicated to play and amusement. We're not to choose a life given over to piling up money and material things. Earlier we sang, we must tell of his salvation while we wait, for the day when Jesus comes will be too late. That's the proper response to the fact that Jesus is coming back. If you and I keep his return in mind, it will help us to stay focused and alert as Christians. It will help us to get our priorities right. And... It will fill us with hope. We know how things are going to turn out. We can never be hopeless so long as we keep Jesus' return in mind. God will complete his plan. You and I are living between Christ's resurrection and his return. Let's take the opportunity to recommit ourselves to being his witnesses as we stand and sing, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise.